Um, but I'm, I'm actually so excited about this, uh, this passage. It's uh, every now and then you come to a text where you realize that, that um, there, there is so much here that there's no way you can do justice to it in an hour-long uh, uh, sermon. And so I'm actually very excited. I, I do pray for the opportunity to preach a second sermon over Psalm 46. Not a half, second half, mind you, but a second sermon over Psalm 46 here in the next couple of months. But if you could turn there, in the middle of your Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms. And uh, in the second book, in what would be called the Korean Psalms, uh, Psalm 46 is what I'm going to be reading from. And uh, because this is the word of God, it is the very utterance of our creator, we're going to ask that if you are able and willing, would you please stand uh, as I read the word of God before us, that we might hear from the Lord God and what he would have for us today. Follow along as I read aloud. <clears throat> to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of God, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You may be seated. As I've been preparing to, to walk through this text, um, many questions have come to mind. For me personally, I always want to be first ingesting God's word as it speaks first and foremost to my soul to prepare me then to be a fount through which it has worked and changed me that I can then come forward and pour out for you. And so I, I want to ask you a few questions to kind of set the scene, prepare your hearts, and, and prepare us to hear the, the, the incredible counsel that we find here in the second book of Psalms. So what comes to mind when I say the words, my world is over? My life as I know it is falling apart, and everything that I've ever thought to be sure is crumbling beneath my feet. What comes to mind? What comes to mind when I say something like, my world is over? What are your panic buttons? What are those things that when they start happening, or when they're not happening, you feel as though the world itself is beginning to fall to pieces, and the very ground beneath your feet is about to fail you? What does that practically look like? For you to say that my life as I know it is over. Perhaps this would be a good way to kind of wrap your mind around it. 
what is something that if it happened, you would call me a bad counselor? If I told you that you should have complete and perfect peace instead of fear. Now keep these circumstances in your mind, okay? And then I want to ask you a few follow-up questions. When you are in such dire circumstances as I've just described, what should you do? Are you simply to find the quickest escape with the least amount of suffering? You circle the wagons, lick your wounds. Are you without help? Are you without hope? Does God even speak to things that severe as your world ending? And on that note, it's texts like Psalm 46 that show us that God has spoken very much to the utterly practical ways of our life, to the, the, the nitty-gritty trials and reality, reality of our daily life in which we live. Psalm 46 is written precisely for God's people when we are in situations where it seems like the world is ending, when all that is good and normal, trustworthy in our life comes to like a shocking and terrifying end. Everything we take comfort in is being stripped away and all earthly graces are becoming almost just weights that bear us down even deeper into the suffering as we watch those things we hold to slip out of our grasp. It's texts like this that we can know what it is to have God as our refuge. So that we know we must have God as our refuge. So we know how to have God as our refuge. And I, I will say, if you are willing to hear the counsel of Psalm 46, if we are willing to be doers of God's word, then I'm certain that our souls can sing along with the swell of people who have followed behind us and have led the way as they have taken refuge in their God as the world around them collapses. If you're happy in this life, if you kind of just want life to continue on surrounding yourself with worldly comforts and building up your own delights and living your life for your temporary happiness, uh, your physical safety, your immediate comfort, and your ease, then I'll, I'll promise you, you're not going to find much comfort here. Just as a Savior is only sweet to a sinner in need of one, so also the consolations of heaven are really only comforting for those who have no stock in this world, who recognize that to, to be anxious over the fleeting pleasures of this life is completely logical because they're indeed fleeting. But would you join me, please just for today, in turning your attention to Psalm 46, and I pray that the Lord God will use this word to counsel our hearts, that we would see he is extremely practical and helpful to bring about lasting fearlessness to those who trust in him even in the most obscene and destructive circumstances. For those of you who take notes, I've got a pretty simple outline for you. We've got three, okay? Number one, what? We're going to see what the psalmist describes it means for us to have refuge in God himself. Number two, why? The psalmist will woo our hearts of the joys and hopes in fixing our refuge to God himself. Why should I have refuge in the Lord God? And finally, number three is going to be how. 
He will not tell us what to do without telling us how to do it. The psalmist will tell us how we are to join him in finding refuge in God himself. And so let's turn our attention first to verses 1, 2, and 3. To the question of what does it mean to have our refuge be in God himself. Let's start actually by looking at verses 2 and 3. I think that's going to be helpful for us orienting our minds around this. We read, Therefore, we will not fear that the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, this describes a destruction, a falling apart of everything permanent and fixed in this life. And I mean, talk about vivid imagery, right? The mountains being thrown into the heart of the sea. This is the earth gives way. It means literally the earth, that ground in which you put your faith with every single step, should it suddenly decide to no longer bear any weight. And not simply the, the, the earth beneath your feet, the earth bears no more weight. When the ground on which you stand, that mighty surface, its crust shall no longer remain. The mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Mountains. What could be more permanent than mountains, Right? I mean, you realize why dynamite was such a great big invention? Because finally we had something that could move those things. But the mountains are fixed. There's almost nothing more immovable than mountains. In Scripture, mountains are used as a description of a, a, safe, hazen, a safe haven, a place to which to run when things are falling apart. And yet what happens when those things you run to will not survive? And they're not just like, thrown about like a, like a gentle gust of a breeze. This is like a moth caught in a jet stream. They're thrown not into the, 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 the beaches, but into the heart of the sea, far beyond where the human eye can even see. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Can you, can you imagine any scarier events than that? When the very earth itself, that which you rely upon to survive, becomes the weapon that destroys you. When those things you put your hope in and trust in begin to rip apart. This is describing utter chaos. This is describing when all of reality, your entire life, is falling apart and spiraling beyond anyone's help. This is beyond it's going to be okay theology. This is beyond the platitudes of reframing your thinking. The world is over. That's who, where we find our psalmist today. These are not trivial matters. But what's the response? Do you see in verse 1? What's the response? Pardon, not even in verse 1. In verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. Okay, so in the midst of this horrible situation, the psalmist that we find today says, we will not fear. It's fearlessness is where we find him. Now, yes, there are good kinds of fear in the Bible, and yet for the Christian, what this man is saying is that there is a possibility that there would be no panic buttons. No utter panic. Rather, this is describing a peace. As Isaiah speaks of it in Isaiah 26, 3-4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. 
because he trusts in you. You don't keep him in a perfect situation because he doesn't trust in his situation. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock, not like those crumbling mountains. So let's say that this is you, okay? The mountains are gone. Everything earthly is lost. Where are you going to be found? In what state will your heart respond? Honestly, if you're anything like me, you probably need a text like this to even know what you should feel. Well, verse 1 tells us, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So notice he speaks plurally here, right? Our refuge and strength, right? Christianity is not ever meant to be an individualistic religion, okay? There is no such thing as someone who's out there kind of operating on their own little face, faith. Those who find refuge in the Lord are those doing so surrounded as their brothers and sisters in Christ crowd in around them into their refuge. But this idea of refuge, it's likely to call to mind the idea that we see in Numbers 35, 9 through 11. These these cities of refuge that would run throughout the land of Israel. The cities of refuge were established by God in the law in order to provide protection from those who are uh, guilty of committing accidental murder. The whole idea is that, in essence, if you accidentally kill someone, your job is to run to a city of refuge. And should you be able to enter into its gates, that will protect you from the family of the person you accidentally killed being able to take out eye-for-eye justice upon you. Now, you'll have to live forever for the rest of your life in this refuge city. But as long as you remain there, you are safe from that which your sin deserves. But not only is God this place of refuge, but it says he's our strength. This simply means that he's the sustainer of all that we need. Allowing us to endure whatever hardship may seek to overwhelm us. Because he is not a God who is far off. Rather read this, he says, he is a very present help in trouble. The language here is almost superfluous. It can be translated, he is an exceedingly helpful help. This is the psalmist saying that no matter what circumstances the people of God find themselves in, God is their help. Their most effective, practical, immediate need is to have him. When someone is starving, their most practical help is God himself, even more than bread. That's an audacious claim. The point of this text, though, is not to say that deliverance will always look the way we want it to. No, their deliverance is God. His very person and presence. He is the definition of practicality. He is our closest help. That means if if you should find yourself, let's say in this situation, I, I want to reassure to you what this means. Deliverance from scary situations then is not seen as a change of circumstances. It's not an escape from suffering, nor is it truly even a feeling of relief. Rather, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of frightful circumstances and heavy burdensome crosses, God is their refuge. 
He is their strength to bear and endure it without giving in or seeking some kind of sinful escape. Meaning that God does not promise a lack of crosses to bear. Rather, he promises to bear you up under them. Think of how we see this take place in 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. But pay attention, because what is the way of escape? Finish the verse. That you may be able to endure it. Notice the deliverance that is promised is that you will be able to endure through those tempta- the temptation. Not that you'll be removed from it. At times, God allows biblical ways to escape from suffering. And these certainly should be utilized when wise and appropriate and when possible. But our goal as believers in Jesus Christ is never to escape suffering. That's never our main goal. What will God's help look like in this situation? Because he is a very present help in trouble. Well, we can know for certain that the truth of the matter is we won't know always what his help will look like. But the effective message of the text is, but I will know he's with me and that he's my help. And he will bring me a timely help to sustain me through this time. But before the psalmist just kind of moves on and and makes an audacious statement like that and then just gets to telling us how to then make God our refuge, he's going to tell us why. Why is it good that we would refuge ourselves in Christ? That we would be hidden in God, not simply removed from suffering, but safely in his hand through it. In verses 4 through 7, the psalmist tells us why. The psalmist woos our hearts. He says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So now in, in contrast to these raging waters of the crumbling world, we now hear of this river whose gentle streams are making glad the city of God. There's this life-giving, peaceful water that flows through the city of God, which gives it merriment, gladness. The idea here is of giddiness, joy, laughter, happiness. It's even used at times to mention someone who's in in a state of elation due to drunkenness. There's this delight that is stirred up in the heart of the city of God. Because there's a life water that flows within it. Now, for those of you who paid attention last week, as Jeff brought the word of God before us, we actually learn that this image of the city of God is not, in fact, a dead, dry city somewhere in Israel. This is, in fact, those living stones that make up the dwelling place of God. This is the people of God. We see that this is the holy habitation of the Most High. So why are people, uh, pardon, why are the people of God filled with happiness and joy? Because though the unsettled and ever-changing earth will rage and sway, their reality is not dictated by the fleeting world. They have the very presence of the living water of God flowing in them, which binds their hearts, their joys, their treasures to a kingdom that cannot be reached by floods and earthquakes. My life isn't dependent upon this world. They delight because they have God himself in their 
mix. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. They have God. So they have everything. They won't be moved, not because they won't lose everything. Rather, as, as uh, Pastor Doug was just mentioning, Christians are promised to lose everything in this life. But they gain their soul. Their joy is fixed on having God. Their joy is fixed and found not on losing nothing, but it's dependent on them losing everything, that they could have the one that thing that they cannot lose. So why will she not be moved? Her help is not found in this world. Her happiness does not come from the raging waters being stilled and the mountains being stayed put. But it says that God will help her when morning dawns. This rings close to Psalm 30, verse 6. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Just as the darkest point of night is right before the sun breaks. Right before the sun begins to cast its light into the darkness. So also God's help is a timely help. He brings his aid never early nor late. Rather precisely when he means to. Well, what does it look like for God to bring help? What does this then look like? Because let's be honest, okay? If if you're honest with yourself and you're in this situation where it seems like the world is ending, a lot of this sounds like really enjoyable stuff, but it also sounds a bit unrealistic. So I want to know, honestly, When I look outside and I see crashing waves, the destruction of the ground beneath my feet, I want to know what does God's help really look like then? And our psalmist tells us, you want help? He says, verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Unlike the bride of Christ who does not move, the same word here, taught her. She will not be moved, but the kingdoms of earth do. In essence, watch in history as kings, kingdoms rise and inevitably fall. The world appears to be a place of utter chaos and competition, doesn't it? And yet, our psalmist offers us help. He says, but no, dear lover of Christ, see who's in charge here. Though the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice. The earth melts. What beautiful pictures do the psalmist use to paint for us deep realities. There was once a potter who was training a young boy in the pottery trade. And so he grabbed a lump of clay and began to form and mold the lump into his design. The boy noticed that as the master worked, he he bent low, really near to the lump. It almost seemed to speak to the clay as he was fashioning it. And the boy asked the master what he was doing, and he responded that he was breathing upon the clay, that it would be as melted putty in his hands, fit for an easy fashioning. 
He said, so long as the clay feels the heat of my breath, it melts beneath me, and I am at work molding it into my design. The same language is here used by the psalmist. To show, yes, the earth, the kingdoms, the nations, they rage, but I speak, and it is putty in my hands. It melts as fashioning clay under his breath that he might use all that he has created for whatever purpose he shall ever desire. The world's not in chaos. It's being used as God intends under his melting power of his utterance. His help is not removing us from our circumstances. It is reassuring us of who is in control of them. You see, the very word that spoke and made the world and that which upholds it day by day, that word can melt it as well. One writer said, God's vowels, consonants, syllables, and sentences cause things like protons and neutrons to form atoms, atoms to form molecules. And on the power of God's almighty utterance, the earth and the universe spring into being. The same utterance that caused them to congeal will cause them to dissolve. Oh, it is good to take refuge in our God. For you sit in the hands of the potter. Nothing is out of control. It melts beneath his very intimate word. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, the psalmist sings the chorus of the song. That which he's going to need to sing again at the end to remind us. Here we see God himself is our ground for confidence. And communion with him is our ground for comfort. The Lord of hosts is this military terminology that, that means, in essence, the, the God of the heavenly realm. It's the Lord of angels, of armies. It speaks of the ultimate power of God that he may call any heavenly host to do his bidding and carry out his purposes. And yet we read, though, that he is near, he is close, intimate, at a mere hand's breath away. God will by no means exempt his people from trouble. But see this, that he is near them in the darkest of troubles. He will not exempt the bush from burning, but he will keep it from being consumed. And through the flames he will show his glory. He does not merely give us shelter. He is our shelter. So how is it that we make this great God our fortress? Because that sounds good, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want the earth to crack beneath your feet and to not be afraid? Who wouldn't want your life to come to a halting end and only to utter, yeah, my life wasn't my own anyway. Who wouldn't, as Paul, want to debate the merit of would I would rather be martyred for my faith or have to stay to help you people? And have your heart say, oh, I'll be content either way. Who wouldn't want life-ending news to bring you only closer to the rock of ages rather than bring you to the core of doubting? Well, the psalmist tells us then, now, here's how. 
You see, the Bible is always extremely practical. The Bible never tells us something to do without showing us how to do it, often telling us how to do it. And here the psalmist has made some bold claims that should everything in my life fall to pieces, I can have no panic buttons. Why? Because I am made delighted, not in this world, not by the, the mountains remaining where they need to be fixed, not by my schedule remaining the same, not by my business not sinking. No, I'm made happy because I have him. I'm made happy because my life is not fixed here, on these mountains. They're on the everlasting rock, which cannot be touched by rust nor thief. My soul rests because my God's voice utters, and the world shall melt at his word. So what have I to fear as I watch it melt around? I know the hand of who fashions it. How? Tell me how, O son of Korah. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes the wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Here is a simple, textual, four-step process of how to fix our refuge in God. Step number one, behold the purpose and providence of the Lord. Though he is the one who brings desolation, we can see his purpose and plan in it. First, we're told to come, behold the works of the Lord. The people of God are called, called now to come and witness to what the Lord says to be happening. He has drawn near them in their trial, and now he says, draw near me in my triumph. But what works in particular are we to behold? He says how he has brought desolations on the earth. The psalmist calls those whose world falls around them to come and look no longer at the desolations that fill this earth, but look to who it is that brings them about. He says look to Pharaoh, to Nebuchadnezzar, to Sennacherib, king of Assyria. When your world is falling apart, who do you see at the center of it? Truly. Who do you see at the center of it? Who raised up Pharaoh for his people to suffer for 400 years? Exodus 9.16 tells us that this was the hand of God. Who brought the king of Assyria to Judah's doorstep with vast armies? 2 Kings 19 says that it was the Lord's hand that raised armies and slaughtered them in their sleep in a single night. In Lamentations 3, we see that nothing can come to pass unless God himself commands it first. So the psalmist calls those who wish to take refuge in God, turn from the waves that shake about you and fix your eyes on God who stands amidst them. Take heed of the desolations that he brings onto the earth. 
no one may stay his hand. But wait. He doesn't just say daddy's strong. He says daddy's good. Behold the providence of the Lord indeed, but behold the purpose. He makes wars to cease. To the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. His desolation is not one that is simply for his own entertainment. He's not like a Greek god playing about with the trivial matters of mankind. Rather, he lays waste a fatherly desolation. This is the desolation in my imagery here that I can come up with. This is the desolation that would take place if a father saw on his baby monitor in the middle of the night a strange man standing over his infant daughter's crib. Oh, you would behold some desolation, wouldn't you? I don't have guns, and I can tell you, that person would not fare well. Why? Why would there be desolation? Because that child belongs to him. And those who seek that child's harm will answer dearly and horrifyingly to that father. He breaks the bow. Persecutions rise and, and should be expected in every era of the church. We are here. Welcome to the tribulation. Yet we see that even these wars shall cease. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. This, these destructive ideas are, are they're ancient terms for warfare that would, that would describe the utter desolation of an enemy. The idea is that so completely would the enemy be defeated that not a single soldier is left standing and not a single person would keep their weaponry in one piece. As the bodies are strewn about the ground, not a soul has armor nor weapon upon it any longer. Its armor has been shattered. He comes not only to destroy the army, but all of the enemy's tools, weaponry, defenses, strategies, conferences, plans, and tricks. Hear this, it will cost the Lord no effort and no sweat to dispatch of his enemies. Should he show himself but a little, let him say but one word and all the forces that gather against him are gone. As a snowball thrown into the sun or as wax held to a flame, they are immediately consumed. This is utter desolation. God's providence guides our mountain's destruction, as the world crumbles, you must bind your heart to the good purposes of God. Do you find yourself here? Then ask yourself a question. Why is God bringing this into my life? If he is in control, what is his goal here? Let me present a few suggestions for your consideration. Could the Lord be like a father taking sharp scissors from your hand that otherwise you would pierce yourself with? Has God taken something from you that perhaps you would have never realized that you were putting hope, your joy, your identity, and even your salvation in? Is God like a loving father drawing you into deep waters as he teaches you to swim to grow your trust in him? 
Does he intend to sanctify and cleanse you of immaturities in your life and walk with him? Is God possibly teaching you hard lessons that he might fit you for a certain ministry in the future? That you may be a gift or a relief or a blessing to those he intends to entrust to your care someday in the future. Uh, Could I even suggest, could even the Lord be intending, as with Job, to make a martyr of your agony? A testimony for his glory and for your eternal rejoicing. These are just a smattering of what scripture says that God may be up to working in crises. But one thing is certain, that the Lord is in this, that he is near. That he intends good purpose. And through all that passes from his hands to you, you must see that his rule is one that will cease wars. Not temporarily, but permanently. His rule is one that will make locks, gates, and safe houses obsolete. Meditate, he says, on the victory of God. When you're in these times of trial, behold the works of the Lord. See his purpose. See his power. We see his victory in part fulfilled as Christ Jesus has come and has put to open shame and mockery not only the powers and principalities, but also the wisdom of the world and all who seek to gather against him. We see this fulfilled as we see the victory of Christ won over sin and death when he laid his soul to the dust and took up his life again. We see Christ laugh as the serpents strike against his heel is the very wound that brings the crushing of his skull. Does your heart long for refuge? Then come behold the wonders of the one who controls the sea. The one who says, here is your boundary. You shall go no further. You who belong to Christ, You who for refuge to Jesus have fled have the hope of God's providence and purpose of his design in this world for his good and helping purposes. I think the old hymn sends it well. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Do you wish to find refuge in God himself? Do you long for his presence to be as still streams of living water for your soul, even when mountains are thrown into the heart of the sea? Behold the providence and purpose of God in your suffering. And number two, stop striving after other gods. Be still and know that I am God. This passage here is not written in a gentle voice. This is actually a stern command. It is an abrupt command. 
Yet I very much see the voice of a father here, calling out as if uh, when, when teaching a son to float on his back in a pool. And sometimes the, the water will begin to splash up on your child's face, yes? And their world has come undone because their oxygen supply is cut short and you are drowning them. But what does a loving father say? Be still. This is a father's booming. Stop panicking. Stop flopping about like a chicken with your head cut off. Stop chasing things you think you need. Stop running from false refuge to false refuge. Have you ever had a child cling to you as if they're going to rescue themselves upon your body? And they end up plunging themselves deeper into the water? He says, be still, for it is my hands in which you rest. It is my arms that shall support you. Be still. What good does it do you to hide from a tsunami in sandcastles on the beach? When your world is falling apart, God calls you, my child, now must cease from clinging to other refuges. He commands us to stop running about life's beach, clinging to every sandcastle we can get our hands on. He says the tide is coming in, and everything is about to forever wash away. Stop binding yourselves to things that won't hold. Instead, he says, make me your refuge. Make me your hope. How? And know that I am God. He's not merely talking here of an intellectual assent that he is God. Here, the word know means more akin to recognize who I am and my authority and power. Acknowledge who I say I am. This is the voice of a king who's being mocked by his subjects as they pay tribute to another king. His voice goes out and says, do you know who I am? Cease. Know that I am your God. Is your world falling apart? Is it you? Or someday will it be? As all that you know and love will one day of this earth conclude. Well, friend, you must cease to run to other companies. Ready your heart for him to remove every refuge from their hands. For they're fleeting and fading. Just as Psalm 16.4 says, those who run after other gods will multiply their sorrows. Other refuges are just sinking sand, promising help and refuge only to bury you. Cling to God who says, according to scripture, stop striving after other gods. Number three. Set your hope on God's promises. This is an important part of the psalm. I believe I'll focus in a, a wee bit more in my, in my next sermon on it, so I'm not going to belabor it for too long, but this is where we see the nitty-gritty of the comfort that's actually given, okay? This is where we see what God is actually trying to provide as a comfort to his people. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Notice, he fixes our hope where it belongs, not on our safety nor on our happiness, nor our circumstances changing. Rather, he fixes our hearts to peace by reminding us that our deepest hope, desire, and purpose will be fulfilled. What are our deepest hearts and desires? That he will be glorified. This is the only kind of thing that can be... Uh, no, that's not fair. This is a comfort that only Christians can actually have. 
You see, there is many a moral man who will be happy to have a God of his own making that will keep him healthy and happy. There is many a moral man that will be happy to have a God that will bring less war and more security. There is many a moral man that can be happy with a God that will keep him physically safe when they're in danger. But only true Christians can be comforted by God's counsel. Be still and know that I am God. Have no fear. My glory will know no disruption from this danger that you face. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. If this brings me no comfort, my hope has been set on something other than God's promise. And I need to cease from striving after other refuges. I tie my heart to a sandcastle as the tide comes in. There lies destruction. This is the purpose for which we've been created. According to Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. This is the purpose for which all things were created. According to Colossians 1, 16. All things were created through him and for him. This is the joy and hope of his children as we read in Romans 5. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. My friends, if we are merely hoping to be delivered from hardship, we desire nothing different than every other person who lives for themselves and seeks their own glory and happiness. No, but the psalmist tells us how to take refuge in God. He tells us where our hope must be fixed. We must ask ourselves when the world is falling down around us and life as we know it seems to be ending, How can I glorify my God in this? For in this I hope and in this I take joy that even through this, my God will be glorified. Even when this all falls apart, my God will be glorified. Are you renewing your minds like this? I I struggle with this, I'll be honest. I do. And this is why often I think the Bible is is seen as less than practical. Because you can be pregnant and worried that you're going to lose your child. And you can be assured and assured that God is in control and realize the very true reality that you might still lose your child. And yet God's still good. You see, the comfort that the Bible gives is only comforting to those who hold fast to what the Bible says is truly hopeful. We bind our hearts to God's promise. Take refuge in the refuge that will not give way. What he says will be certain. And number four, remind yourself of the power and presence of God. He repeats the chorus. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The psalmist sings of the intimate presence of God. Recall to mind what verse 1 proclaims so boldly. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. If you want to make the Lord your refuge, even during the worst circumstances, you must continually renew your mind. Remind yourself of God's power. This is the Lord of all the heavens. 
He can dispatch any resource he wishes. He can fill the mountains with fiery chariots of angels. He can whisk you away in a moment of your troubles if he should will. If you feel you are in danger, it is not because your God is lacking in power. So remind yourself of his presence. He may let you go to the furnace. But he promises his presence amidst the fires. He is our fortress. Battlement. Safe haven. When the earth falls apart, when we get life-ending news, when the person we've always leaned on is suddenly ripped away, when someone is fading fast and it doesn't seem as though the ambulance is going to get there in time, when a child or a parent rebels and seems that they will never come to the Lord for salvation, whatever the mountains may be that are being hurled into the ocean, remind yourself of the power of your God and remind yourself always of His presence. For a refuge is found in the crumbling world. Not as a removal from the crumbling world. Memorize verse 1. Here's your homework. Memorize this text. Repeat it to yourself until you believe it. Post it on index cards around the house. There is no such practical help in this world for quieting the mind of a Christian against the fear of trouble and persecution, as to settle in their hearts by God's promises to be with and care for his people and for his good plans and purposes that he brings through in the darkest of times. The Lord of hosts is with you. He will help you and he will bring his glory through times of trial. You are not alone. You are sustained and supported by his providential hand. Take comfort. You who are hidden in Christ Jesus, fear not. Your refuge cannot be swayed, though the earth give way. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is a very present help in trouble. This psalm is one of the uh, most important psalms to a man by the name of Martin Luther. And as he was undergoing trials and tribulations and being called before kings and threatened to be burned alive, uh, he he wrote uh, many a poem and many a song and and even a translation of the word, a mighty fortress is our God. Um, And and I want to read to you Luther's 46th. It's a poetry design from this psalm that gave him so much courage and hope in the midst of of real, true fear and danger. He says, God is our refuge in distress, our shield of hope through every care, our shepherd watching us to bless, and therefore we will not despair. Although the mountains shake, the hills their place forsake, and billows o'er them break, Yet still will we not fear, for thou, O God, art ever near. God is our hope and strength in woe. Though earth he maketh wars to cease, his power breaketh spear and bow, his mercy sendeth endless peace. Then, though the earth remove, and storms rage high above, and seas tempestuous prove, 
yet still we will not fear. The Lord of hosts is ever near. When you are in life-ending circumstances, when it seems as though the ground is giving way beneath you, I pray that this psalm could guard your heart, could find you standing on the rock of ages. Fear not. To step forward through endurance, faithfully dealing, enduring the suffering ahead for his glory. And our psalmist tells us how. Behold the purpose and providence of the Lord. Stop striving after other gods, other refuge. Set your hope on God's promises, what true deliverance is, and remind yourself of the power and presence of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word. It is all that we need. It is what we need to endure this life. It's what we need to fix our hope on the next one. You are our practical help. And your word does not just give us practical help. It gives us you. Lord God, would you you use this psalm to bind our souls to you as our refuge? Would we understand what it is to hold you as our safe haven and not just what you will give us? Not just that you will deliver us in the way we see fit, but you are our deliverance. Lord, would you help us to see why? Would you woo us with the goodness, the delight that is found in having you and you alone be our happiness? You and you alone be our joy. You and you alone be our hope. And Lord, would you teach us how? Would you let our hearts to be doers of your word as you tell us how to take refuge in you? Lord, we pray that you would bless your word. We pray that you would bless it to our souls. We pray that you would call to repentance, that you would encourage the faint-hearted. Lord, would you help us who are weak Lord, would you save sinners, not simply from your damnation of their sin, but would you save us from the rule of our sin in this life? That when the earth gives way, the mountains be moved, that we would not be. That when the world crumbles, when all happy gifts of life are blotted out, we would have joy because you are our happiness. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.